May the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, again, welcome to you all. It's great to be back with you all. I've been away a couple of weeks, so I'm really pleased to be here today as we're continuing this sermon series on Christianity and world religions. And I have the um, excellent task today to talk to you about Hinduism. Um, But before we do that, I want to uh, just tell you a couple of stories that will set, I think, the stage for our time together this morning. I moved to Texas on my 14th birthday, the day before high school started, and I had the distinct privilege of going to a high school in Sugarland, Texas, and for those of you Dallasites who've never heard of Sugarland, shame on you, (laughs) they're a band. No, um, it's a suburb of Houston, and we didn't live there, but that's where the high school I was zoned to go to, and during the mid-90s, the high school I went to was, at a time, the second most ethnically diverse high school in the country. I want you to think about that for a second. It's a big school. We had over 4,000 students, but because of Houston and the draw that it has, just like Dallas does, there were people of every, from every part of the world, of every religious background, of every cultural background you can imagine. After one of the summers after I graduated from high school, I played in a basketball league, a summer league, at the Jewish Community Center with one other white guy named Ryan, who, who was a Christian, and the rest of the team were Hindu, Muslim, and Sikh. So we're not going to talk about Sikhism, but it's another one of the world major religions. And I got along great with these guys. I got along great with them all through high school. We had a great time in the Summer Basketball League. And some of us have even kept in touch uh, through the years. Um, That sets the stage a little bit for what I hope to give is a charitable read of Hinduism and of all the world religions. I'm so glad that we're doing this sermon series because it gives us a chance to better stand our own faith in conversation with our neighbors who live all around us, who practice different faith beliefs. And primarily, it helps us to be good neighbors, to have an understanding of those who have a different belief practice, but also can help us better understand and practice our own faith in Christ. Um, I was sharing with uh, the men of St. Michael's um, earlier uh, this semester that um, I have a very charitable approach to all world religions, Um, except for Scientology and the Mormon church. And those are stories for another time. But I'm going to do my best to give you a charitable uh, read of Hinduism today. One of the things that I think is really important, and I think Father Bob has touched on this and and maybe will again next week, um, when we say Hinduism, uh, we are doing something incorrectly because there is not one unified Hinduism belief system for the whole world. But you can say the same thing for Judaism. You can say the same thing for Christianity. You can certainly say the same thing for Buddhism and Islam. And you just have to stop and think for half a second to to think about the the huge distinctions between different groups who practice. So even today in Judaism, we've got Orthodox, we've got Conservative, we've got Reformed. And they don't agree about lots of things within the Jewish faith. Um, Within Christianity, of course, we've got Evangelical, we've got Liberal, we've got Roman Catholic, we've got Eastern, we've got Western, we've got da-da-da-da-da-da. We can go all day, right? And we fundamentally agree on a lot of things. But... There are some people who call themselves Christian who I would say, really? How does that work? Because I can't see it anywhere in your life, right? And fundamentally, I believe that being a Christian means being a follower of Jesus. So we have some different isms, and Hinduism, of course, is no exception. This is an ancient, ancient uh, religious system that starts four or 5,000 years ago, um, long time ago in 
India. And by the way, if I get any of this wrong and you know I'm wrong, just raise your hand and yell at me. I'm perfectly fine with that this morning. I will, I will definitely mispronounce some things. So please uh, just tell your Hindu friends that I did my best and I tried and uh, we'll go from there. But if I get something wrong, let me know. Four or 5,000 years ago, so ancient, so like as old as Judaism uh, in its foundation or older in India primarily, and there are approximately 1.1 billion people in the world today who are Hindus. So that's one in six, one in seven people. So uh, if everybody in this room was made up of the world, there would be quite a few here, right? So we've got, I think we've talked about this, and you're going to talk more about it, I think, next week. Two billion Christians, a billion um, who practice Islam, a billion who practice Buddhism, a billion who practice Hinduism, and we've got another couple billion who do some other things, Judaism and others. Uh, but, but maybe one in six, one in seven people in the world. Now, it's not defined uh, distinctly to India. That's where it begins and where most of its practitioners are today. Um, but there are Hindus all over the world. And uh, there are large populations of Hindus um, in Texas, um, in England. Um, think about the colonialism and how uh, culture and religions get spread back and forth and immigration and all those kinds of things. Um, and so you can certainly find a, a Hindu temple very near here. Bob, didn't we go eat at one one time? Yeah, we, Bob, Bob's taking me to lunch at a Hindu temple. How about that? That's how cultured your clergy are. We, and, sorry, that's a whole other thing. So a couple things about Hinduism and the history, just to get us started. There are some things you're going to expect me to say today, and I'm not going to make any jokes about cows. So just don't, don't wait for any cow jokes. They're not coming. Not all Hindus are vegetarian, and not all Indians are Hindu, right? So if you go to an Indian restaurant and they serve meat and you're confused, don't be, because there are different belief systems and practices. In fact, one of the distinctive things about Hinduism is there's not, there's not a, a structure. Like, our church has a structure. I mean, we have a, um, a bishop who oversees this diocese, and then other dioceses are united within the Episcopal Church, and Roman Catholics have a structure, and Islam has a structure. Um, Hinduism doesn't really have that kind of overarching structure, and so there's lots of local practices uh, pilgrimages, festivals, celebrations, and all those kinds of things. I, I want to mention the caste system because I think it is uh, historically uh, a fundamental understanding of Hinduism, and it has to do uh, with some of the major uh, belief systems. So there's traditionally four castes of people. And for us in America, enlightened as we are today, um, th this kind of makes us a little squirmy, and it should. Um, because if you define people based on social class and don't give them the opportunity to move between those classes in their life, uh, it's pretty limiting. Um, in fact, that's kind of what we did in America with slavery and, and other things as well, the oppression of, of different people groups throughout the centuries. But in Hinduism, there's a basic understanding that is really, really old, um, that there are four castes of people. Um, I'll start at the top. Of course, the teachers and the priests are on the top, because if you don't put the teachers and priests on top, they don't get to eat, so you put them on the top. That's a joke, and you missed it. But <laughs> You talked about Judaism last week, right? I mean, the whole sacrifice, you know, why do you sacrifice so the priest can eat? That's why you come. Okay, anyway, all right. So these are the Brahmins. This is the top caste. And the next one, um, again, I'm going to misspell or mispronounce all these, is the soldier and the ruler class. Because, you know, you can't be a ruler and be too far below those teachers and priests. And then under that, you've got the farmers and merchants. And under that, the laborers and the servants. 
So you're born into a caste. You're supposed to marry within your caste. You're supposed to do the best you can, practice good dharma and karma. I'll talk a little bit about both of those. And you do that through yoga. There are four distinct types of that um, in order that when you are reincarnated in your next life, hopefully you can move up in the system. And once you get to the top, eventually to break this cycle of life, death, reincarnation. Um, so let me talk a little about a couple of these things. Dharma, wonderful television show with a guy named Greg, has nothing to do with that television show. Dharma are the duties, rights, laws, and natural laws that sustain the universe as we understand it. So the way that we as humans would conform to that law would be in our customs, in our religious code, the rites of passages that we um, participate in, and in our caste duty. So if, uh, if I'm a teacher and my duty is to teach, then by doing that teaching, I am practicing dharma. And in fact, the Buddha, his teachings are called dharma. Okay. Um, now, Buddhism is a branch that comes off of Hinduism, as is Jainism, which really didn't make it outside of India. But Jains are the people who uh, really believe that all of life is sacred, and so they, they don't squish bugs and things like that, right? Um, uh, it's one of three kind of major uh, uh, outbreaks of Hinduism, if you will. So that's Dharma. It's uh, the right laws, the way that the universe works. Um, and within that, how you practice dharma, uh, there are four main yogas that you can do, and these are the good works that can in lead you to having good karma, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So the yoga is defined as connecting oneself to God or to the spiritual dimension. And we all in America know what yoga is today because we all have our yoga mats and go to our hot yoga classes and all that. But Fundamentally, yes, physical exercise is part of one of the yogas. Uh, there are four major paths, so there are others. So the study of spiritual practices. Uh, think about there's a connection there with, with our own faith. Doing loving things for other people, acts of charity, kinds of exercise, and a pursuit of good deeds. All that sounds really good. Um, but a difference and a fundamental difference is you do those things in order to grow your karma, to have good karma, to erase your bad karma. And karma, you all know, I think, um, are the actions, the words and deeds um, that we practice uh, that uh, put us sort of on the correct spiritual path towards enlightenment and erase bad karma that maybe we have done in a previous life, according to Hinduism. But fundamentally what karma is, it's an impersonal force so there's, it's not a relationship. It's just a force in the universe that propels you from one life to the next. So if you've got good karma and you get propelled from one life into the next, if you were in uh, the lower caste system, maybe you get to be in the next one and, and you go through another process of reincarnation and you live it again. And if you do yogas and practice good karma, maybe you get to the next one and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. But the ultimate goal of Hinduism is to bring about an end to this cycle of reincarnation, and that's called moksha. And I know Bob mentioned moksha. I heard him say it on one of his sermons. And am I saying that right? Moksha? Uh, close enough? That's the ending of this cycle. And the purpose of this ending is reunification with God, with divine. Now, just like in Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Islam, there are sacred texts. Um, they're called, the, the earliest sacred texts are called the Vedas. Um, 
and there are at least four major ones, although the tradition in Hinduism is the Vedas never have an, a beginning or an ending. They are always. Um, there are four, and those first four initial sort of big Veda texts given to the Vedic sages long ago, if you, we're going to talk about Islam next week, and uh, the tradition in Islam is that Allah gave the Quran to Muhammad directly, right? It's a direct connection, so Muhammad's writing it down. That's the same kind of idea with, with the Vedas, that the Vedic sages are receiving these texts directly from the gods, Okay. And we'll talk about God and gods in just a minute within the context of Hinduism. And then those Vedas, um, there are lots and lots and lots. In fact, uh, one of them, the Rig Veda, is like 12,000 uh, verses long. Like if our, if our Bible has 150 Psalms, there are like over 12,000 in one of those, right? So there's a lot, lots and lots of writing. And then those Vedas are interpreted in a series of writings called the Upanishads, and those commentaries are inspired by the gods, and that might be a better way for us to understand how we receive uh, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as inspired by God, right? Um, different from being given directly. And then uh, those are interpreted, and there are some other uh, epic poems and writings and just tons and tons of writings. One of those writings that hopefully we know about um, is contained within a revered book of poetry that's called Marhab Harata. Let's get that right. Am I close? And within that is the Bhagavad Gita. And I know I said that wrong, but the Gita is the story of, um, it's called the Song of the Lord, and it's written about 250 BCE, and it's the story of Lord Krishna, who is an incarnate form of the, the god Vishnu, and uh, Lord Krishna comes and he's on a battlefield and he's having a conversation with a warrior. Remember that warrior class is way up there, um, Arjuna. And Arjuna asks the following questions. What's the meaning of life? How should we live our lives? And Krishna's answer is a story about self-sacrifice, about pursuit of wisdom, uh, which promises joy in life. And you'll if you read through the Gita, you'll see some parallels, some similarities with the teachings of the Old Testament and of Jesus. But there's some fundamental differences uh, in Hinduism, and I think we need to talk about some of these beliefs and then put them in context with our own belief. Um, one of them is how God is understood generally. So um, I heard Hinduism growing up described as a pantheistic relation, uh, pantheism, pantheistic religion, and that God is in everything. So God is here in this plant right here. God is here. God is there. God is everywhere. God is in all things. And if you read some of the Gnostic writings, the Christians, like the Gospel of Thomas, some of that language will sound familiar. Even if you read some Celtic um, theology, um, you might hear a little bit of that. But I think a better way to understand Hinduism's belief in God is, is this. It is a polymorphic monotheism. So there is only one true God. Um, they have a name, Brahman. Um, and the gods that come and uh, people have conversations with or embodying earth, all those kinds of things, are sort of um, expressions of character, the divine characteristics. So think of Sophia as the female personification of God's wisdom. But unlike with Sophia, these are personified in bodily form and represented, you can put the slide up for me, um, in statues and other things. So Shiva, 
represents power. And Vishnu represents righteousness. And this is Lakshmi, who is a tea that you drink when you go... <laughs> Lakshmi, no? Oh, boo, that was a bad joke. This is a, a statue that's in the Birmingham Museum of Art. Uh, we were there a few weeks ago, and I was running through looking at some other exhibits, but I thought, hey, I'm going to talk about Hinduism, and so I want to take this picture. So I'm going to talk about this picture just for a second, because uh, what Lakshmi does as a representation of a characteristic of God is that Lakshmi is the Hindu goddess of wealth, love, and beauty. In her left hand, she holds a lotus blossom. That represents reality, purity, and beauty. And in her right hand, she holds a rosary or mala. A mala is used for keeping count the number of times you chant a mantra, which is a sacred sound or word or the name of a deity. And I, I know the picture's not great and it's not super big, but maybe you can see a little bit of that with Lakshmi. One of the things I think is really interesting about that in connection to um, our own belief system is as we learn how to do centering prayer, as we learn how to pray with rosary, um, there's so many parallels and connection. Uh, a mala would be another, another thing you might call it would be like a set of prayer beads, right? And that we count the number of prayers that we say. And so there's a lot of parallel in, in practice there. But back to God. So God in Hinduism is all-knowing, all-powerful, unknowable, all the things, but also impersonal. And so... To be caught up in God, to experience a release from the cycle of reincarnation, um, is actually to just rejoin sort of God. Um, all of life emanates from God. All of life, um, including our soul, with part of God, this is the Hindu belief. Um, so God is a force, uh, like the force, but impersonal. Right? There's not, it's not about relationship. And in fact, um, the human condition is not about being separated from God because God is in everything. The human condition is not about sin, but it's about ignorance. It's ignorance that keeps us from knowing uh, that the divine dwells in us and those kinds of things. Um, so that is a fundamental difference between Hinduism and, and Christianity. Uh, I want to walk through a couple more and then talk about our faith, and, and some connections as well. So again, in Hinduism, God is in everything. So God is in the, in the lights that are in the sky. Uh, God is in the tree. God is in you. God is in me. God is in everything. But in Christianity and in Judaism, God creates creation. You can go back to Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning, uh, when God began to create. Uh, the earth was a formless void, right? And God shapes it, and then God says, let there be light, and there is light. God speaks, and there is light. That light is distinctive from God. It is part of creation. God makes the creation. Uh, we say ex nihilo, out of nothing, right? But in Hinduism, the light is God. Now, that's a fundamental difference between the two. So um, in Christianity and in Judaism, we believe that God is distinctive from creation. God makes the creation, and God is still God, but the creation itself is not God. Um, it is something that is made by God. So for us, what that means is the Holy Spirit can dwell in our hearts, but we regard our souls as distinct from God in that um, we are capable of sin and choosing to separate ourselves from God, um, in that we are capable of choosing God and that our souls can 
be in relationship and right relationship with God, and that brings us joy and comfort and peace. Um, secondly, we believe, um, Christians and, and Jews believe that God is personal, um, and, and um, those who practice Islam as well, that God desires to be in relationship with us. So it's a fundamental difference between Hinduism um, and monothe- other Abrahamic uh, monotheistic faiths. Um, we don't believe that you have to wait until you reach a certain level of enlightenment, um, as you do in Hinduism, uh, spiritual maturity, in order to know God. We believe that anybody can know God at any time. A child can know God. Um, you and I can know God. And it doesn't take uh, going through a bunch of different lives and working on that. But for Hindus, that relationship is only possible for those who are near nirvana. Not the band from Seattle, but the state of consciousness when you can be released from this cycle. Although, they've got some good music, and there might, no, that's another sermon. We put the slide back up, I'm sorry. One other fundamental difference. Do you guys remember the Ten Commandments? Could you name them all in a row if I asked you to today? No, so go read them. All right. Uh, God, there is one God, right? Yahweh is his name. God is God. Um, You are to have no other gods before me. Um, You are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And you are not to make any carven images, right? This was a big issue um, for the Hebrew people as they wandered. You might know there's a Jewish tradition that Abraham's father, um, uh, this is uh, in the Mishnah, I think. Abraham the father of our faith, his father was uh, an image carver. Like he would make gods, household gods for people in their own homes. So out of stone or wood. And we're told very clearly in the 10 commandments that we're not supposed to do that. Why? Because that's not God, right? It might represent God, but as humans, we have a tendency to worship the thing that represents the, the main thing because we we're very limited in our ability and our capability and our understanding. And so in Hinduism, you will see um, statues and idols and things like this, and you will see people go and go to temple and worship them and that kind of stuff. And this is a fundamental difference between us. Now, we're going to talk about art and its expression. If I'm going to give Hinduism a charitable read, what I would say is that Lakshmi and Krishna and Shiva and all of these things, uh, Vishnu, that represent divine characteristics of God, we could look at them and understand them as like icons, but we struggle with icons, right? We struggle with images that portray um, a scene of our faith or the biblical story um, without getting caught up. The, the idea of an icon is that you, you look through it or you pray through it, And if we were going to give a charitable read of Hinduism and Buddhism, we would have the same kind of idea. But we also know that as human beings, that any time we idolize anything, if we make it into a carbon image, then it's just easier to to bring food to that thing. Because I can't see God, because God is unknowable. So I might as well just make a sacrifice to this thing, right? And so that's a difference. Um, And we have to be really careful in our Christian faith not to make idols um, of anything. One of the things that we fundamentally believe about our own souls is that they are human. They have to be human. Jesus' soul has to be human because if he does, doesn't have a human soul, um, he can't redeem our own souls. He can only redeem what he is. Um, we're created in the image of God, but we struggle with sin, and that's a real struggle. And so our need is not for knowledge necessarily, 
but our need is for grace. And we talk a lot about that down here, uh, the importance of remembering that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, that it's a free gift of God. And so this is where karma um, gets us in a little bit of trouble, because we all like to use that language. Um, it is so indebted into our popular culture today. Um, you know, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to have bad karma, or so-and-so's got a lot of good karma because they did a mitzvah, which is a good deed in Judaism. I mean, like, it's all playing together in our culture right now. And there's a little bit of it in Christianity. I'm going to read you one, one text from Galatians. This is Paul, again, who we heard from earlier, but in a different letter. He's, Paul says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So that's Paul's version of karma. But remember, it's all in the context of salvation is only through the gift of Christ through grace. There's nothing we can do to earn it. After we're saved, the actions that we have in our lives have consequences. If you were going to talk to a Hindu person and try to explain Jesus, I think this is something that you could say. This is the Christian faith through the language of Hinduism. The perfect God became flesh, lived among us, and then bore the cross of all bad karma. Then God credited Christ's righteousness, his good karma, to our account. Our task then, as Christians, is to respond, to accept this act on our behalf, and to begin a new life. We are a new creation. And as a result, we are not reborn again and again until our bad karma is gone. We're not released by our own actions. No, our salvation and deliverance come only through God's intervening action in Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. I know it's fun, maybe, to sometimes imagine reincarnation or living parts of our lives over again, particularly those parts that were really fun or those that we really messed up and we want to do better. And reincarnation is appearing more and more in our culture. Um, and I think one of the things that we have to be really careful about as people of the Christian faith is that when we talk about our lives and how they end and then how the culture responds with, well, you know, so-and-so was a good person, they went to the good place, great show, it's almost over, but again, it's earning your way, a point system. Um, or we talk about, um, you know, someone dying and then they're still around, or we talk about um, past lives. This language sort of eeps in, and it becomes sort of part of the popular culture, and I think we want to be really careful about that, because what we fundamentally believe as Christians, of people of faith in Jesus Christ, is that when we die, um, we are judged, but uh, thank God, we've, Jesus is the, the person who's standing in for us. And because of his love for us and the grace of God through him, uh, we can be saved. And then um, it's not that our souls are immortal, but that our souls become eternal, that we become eternal with God and we get to enjoy paradise with our God in heaven. In glory, we're not reabsorbed back into God. That's what Hindus believe. But we continue as distinct persons who then have the blessing of seeing God face to face and to worship in God's presence for eternity. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you great thanks for your gift of your personal love for us and especially 
your gift of Jesus Christ when you became enfleshed, lived among us as one of us, to teach us, Lord, that you love us unconditionally, and that it is only by your love and grace that we are saved from our sins and separation from you, and that we can live in right relationship with you now and in glory. Lord, we thank you for this sermon series, and we pray for our Hindu brothers and sisters, that we might continue to be good neighbors to them, that we might love them with all that we are, and as we converse with them and learn more about their faith and ours, uh, that we can share the good news that is within us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.